This is On and Off Your Mat podcast episode 11, Being an Awakening Heart Warrior. My name is Erica and I'm your host. For this episode, I sat down with Caralia Grant. Caralia is an internationally renowned yoga teacher, author, and retreat leader. She is the founder of New Zealand's most popular yoga website, The Yoga Lunchbox. She's also a contributor for Elephant Journal and she has published two books. Today we sat down to talk about her yoga practice and how it has influenced the way she teaches and leads retreats. As always, I really appreciate your support. So if you leave a review on iTunes or on your iPhone podcast app, you automatically enter a giveaway. Once more, Atlara is supporting this podcast in their efforts to ignite a community of strong women who lift each other up and is giving out a $75 shop card. If you want to know more, stay tuned and I'll give more details at the end of the show and I'll announce the winner of the last giveaway. On that note, take a listen. I'm sure you'll enjoy. Hi, Carolia. Hi, Erica. Thank you so much for joining me today all the way from New Zealand. Oh, my pleasure. I stumbled on your website, The Yoga Launchbox, a few months back. And when I started to read your work, I realized you are basically who I want to be when I grow up. So I'm super <laughs> stoked about this interview. Uh, thank you. Thank you. I am too. I love to talk about all this kind of stuff, yoga and waking up and retreats. And yeah, it's my passion. Yeah, great. For our listeners that don't know anything about you, can you tell us a bit about yourself and what brought you to yoga originally? Mm, so I am a Kiwi, so I live in New Zealand, although I did spend my 20s traveling. So I have spent quite a bit of time in the States and in Canada because I'm <laughs> Canadian as well as a Kiwi. Oh, you are. Me too. I'm Canadian. Yeah. Ah, yeah, my mum was born in Canada, so I have a Canadian passport, which is super handy. That is handy. Uh-huh. Um, yes, I spent quite a lot of time in Whistler, and it was actually in Whistler that I really got into yoga in about 1999, 2000, hmm. and it was back issues that got me into yoga initially. I'd had a spinal fusion when I was 16, L4, L5, like the disc in between those vertebrae had collapsed. Wow. And yeah, by the time I was 25, I was having really severe sciatic pain and my right foot was half numb. I was walking with a limp and I didn't have much faith in the doctors or the Western medical model. Um, I was like, no, nah, I got to sort this out myself. Mm. And so I kind of made a commitment that I was going to heal myself and I knew yoga would be a big part of it. So that's what initially got me right into yoga back when I was about 25, 24. Mm-hmm. And how does it serve you today? Your back is feeling different? Is it still for that health part? I'm sure it's, there's other reason why it's important in your life now. Yeah. So when I started going hard out into physical yoga practice, it made a massive difference to my spine almost immediately. Mm. Um, within six months, because I was in chronic daily pain, and that dissipated within about three or four months. And then the limp went away and my foot slowly, all the nerve damage slowly reversed itself. Mm. There's still a weakness on that side. But, um, I mean, at the time the doctors are like, you're going to need another operation and you've got degenerative disc disease and this is going on and that's going on. And none of that has, has come about. So that practice of yoga um, physically, mentally, emotionally made a massive, massive difference. Um, and then, I mean, I'm 43 now, so I've been practicing for oh my God, my first class was 95, so more than mm -hmm. two decades. Mm -hmm. And my practice has evolved in that time. So now I predominantly do uh, a tantra yoga practice, which is breath retention, it's chanting, it's visualization. So I'm not doing, I don't do traditional asana on a mat anymore much. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and for me, the practice of yoga itself is it's very much anchored in a moment-by-moment experience of meeting reality as it is. And so in that respect, um, with my back pain, I've noticed that as I'm doing less asana actually that it, I do need to be mindful of it for that reason. I do need to actually do some for the physical reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, the practice has just evolved for me into something more subtle, refined, and, yeah, moment by moment rather than um, just on a mat. Mm-hmm. With what you're saying now, and in both of your books, you talk about the importance of having a daily home practice, amongst other mm. things. You've said about how it, it impacted your life as a yogi, but how has it impacted your life as a teacher? Mm. So, uh, yeah, daily practice has been crucial for me since about probably about 2004. So in 2004, I had uh, quite full-on kundalini awakening that also included psychosis, and I ended up in Lionsgate Hospital Mm. acute psych ward twice. And so when I got out of the psych ward, I knew that I just had to practice yoga every day for the emotional and mental healing. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I've had a daily practice since then, but while it was asana for a long time, it began to transition and become more and more meditation. And now that daily practice is meditation, pranayama, visualization. But it it, it is the anchor, like absolutely every single – I'm actually on a thousand-day practice right now. Mm-hmm. Like I wrote the book 40 Days of Yoga, which is all about, you know, doing 40 days in a row. And having done that so many times, I was like, well, maybe I could do 90 days. And I did that a few times. I'm like, maybe I can do 120 days. <laughs> And I did that, and then I was like, all right, I'm going for it. I'm going to do a 1,000 days in a row of the same practice. Um, and that has just – it has been the most extraordinary journey to have that commitment to mm-hmm. showing up no matter what. And, I, and I've failed um, twice already. Like I got to day 338, and I – forgot or (laughs) yeah and that was a that was a really interesting experience because the next day when I woke up and I realized there was so much that went on in my mind in terms of I was so pissed off at myself and so upset and there was a lot of emotional turmoil um, as a result of, of forgetting and it took me about eight days before I recommitted and started up again And then I got to day 617, the second time. And again, I forgot. Um, And what's interesting is both times I was on a yoga immersion. First time with Shiva Ray and the second time with Anna Forrest. And yeah, and of course, you know, I'm already doing about 10, 12 hours a day of yoga. So it's no wonder I was exhausted. Mm -hmm. But I also realized like the second time when I realized I'd forgotten, it was a completely different experience. There was literally, there was no fluctuation in the mind. There was no emotional response either. Um, it was, and I was instantly went into curiosity. It's like, oh, this is fascinating. Mm-hmm. How am I going to respond or react to what's just occurred? And I could really see the difference in my internal reaction um, from the last time. You know, and for me, that just showed the subtlety of the practice and how it was really impacting my internal responses really impacting the neocortex and the limbic mm-hmm. um, system. What I did notice though is I still went into like a, a shock, like my reptilian brain, there was still a fight, flight or freeze response. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, that's fascinating. So that's still happening. But the neocortex and the limbic stuff is, is like the fluctuations there is starting to, to not happen so much. And I'm like, hmm, all right, I'm back on the horse. So that very day I started again. And so now I'm on my third attempt 
I'm doing it a thousand days in a row and I'm at day 288. So I'm, I'm, you know, more than, more than a fifth of the way there. That's amazing. What Mm. would you say is your biggest learning experience from all of this? That nothing beats just doing the practice. Like the, the benefits of showing up and practicing every day is not in the actual uh, what you're doing. So say you're showing up and doing a physical practice. The benefit is not necessarily getting stronger or getting more flexible or calming your nervous system. It's in the commitment itself to show up mm-hmm. and in the way that the mind will always, always come up with reasons to not show up, <laughs> to not do the practice, right? Yeah, and it's, yes. it's that's the practice is working with the mind. So the commitment itself becomes the field with which we um, practice and which we play. Our ability to witness and engage with the mind, with that recognition, that understanding, that we are not the mind. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why daily practice is so crucial for teachers in particular, because if you don't practice yoga daily, you're not engaging with your mind in that way. If you're not engaging with your mind in that way, you're not really practicing yoga. You're not in on that path of self-realization, of waking up. Mm-hmm. Is that why um, self-study and inquiry are kind of at the center of what you do? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Because without that self-inquiry, without witnessing myself in action, I'm just immersed in myself. And if I'm immersed in myself, well, I'm not practicing yoga. Mm. And so to really notice and witness myself in action and to notice what triggers me and to to notice when I'm coming from a desire to like I noticed I was at a party recently and I was watching myself telling a story and I was like, Oh, I'm trying to make myself sound good here. <laughs> and it was really, really subtle, mm-hmm. but I caught it. I was like, huh, I'm kind of in, inflating this story like five percent in a particular way. What's that? Oh, that's from a desire to come across in a particular way well that's what's that coming from well that's coming from this and and all of this is going on while I'm telling the story (laughs) to these people right (laughs) self-observation it you know once it becomes a practice it becomes relentless in a way like it's always happening it's always occurring and as a teacher your own self-study what do you think it gives you like when you teach Mm. inspiration or How does it, it gives serve me the, your teachings? Yeah, it gives me the ability to really notice how students are relating to their experience. Mm. So when I'm working with people, it's not about, like if we're doing physical postures, which, you know, I do less and less on my retreats, et cetera. It's, it's more of the self-study stuff. But if people are doing physical postures and I'm instructing them and I'm observing them, it's not so much what they're doing that matters what's more interesting to me or more apparent is how they're doing it. Mm. It's, it's that layer of how they're relating to it. So you could have 10 people doing warrior two, for example, yeah. and of those 10 people doing it, like six might be doing it physically well, but the way they're relating to how they're doing it is the important thing. That's what reveals their psyche. That's what reveals their patterns, their attachments, their aversions, their fears, all that stuff which appears to be who we are but is not who we are. Hmm. And it's the undoing of that. It's being able to see someone, see what, what they're in, and then I can see how to relate to them in a way that holds up a mirror in a loving, compassionate manner so that they can see themselves more clearly. So you use the physical practice to notice the mental aspects mm-hmm. and then you use that to teach. 
Yeah, absolutely. That that's what it's all about. Like the, for me, the physical practice, the reason why we do it is to hone our ability to stay focused and attentive to our internal experience. Mm-hmm. And we do it also to become embodied, to move out of the mind and actually into the body to be able to feel and sense the subtleties of our inner workings. And then once you've got that ability to attend to your internal process and you can sense your internal process, then you begin to see what your internal process actually is. And then you'll be like, oh my God, I'm completely achievement orientated. Mm -hmm. There's a part of me striving to do this right because I'm really scared if I don't, that I'll die. I mean, that's an extreme example of how achievement can become a survival mechanism and the two things can become um, quite intertwined. So the more you're able to see your own process as a teacher, the more you're able to see your student process. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So the first step for a teacher that wants to teach more than asana is their own self-study. And then where can they go from there, you think? Yeah. I mean, if you don't, if you don't know yourself, if you can't observe the inner workings of your psyche within you, then you, you won't be able to observe the inner workings of the psyche within your students. Mm-hmm. Um, because, I mean, this is kind of meta in a way, but in a way it's all one and the same. And so if I have stuff that's going on in me, then I'm more likely to be cloudy and to project and so to be unable to clearly see my students because my stuff gets in the way of seeing them clearly. Mm-hmm. You see? Yeah. Um, so as as teachers, that feels to me that it, it's one thing to learn the postures. It's another thing to, to know how to physically place the body. You know, there's a lot of emphasis on anatomy, at, you know, at the moment. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's another thing to really observe how are we in relationship to the actions we're taking. Mm-hmm. And, and that gap, that the way we relate to the thing that we do, to me, that's where the yoga lives and the relationship to the thing. Mm-hmm. That's, that is super interesting. And at the same time, it can be so challenging for the teacher, especially in a bigger group, to relate to more than what they might think the average student mm. might react or how they might react to what's going on. Yeah, I think we're dealing with larger groups, like I teach at festivals quite often mm-hmm. and in that setting I'm dealing with a larger group and it's a way, for me then it's about energetically how present I am and how I hold the space and then it's the languaging so that it's not up to me to see the student per se within, you know, if I've got 40, 50, 60 people in a room but if I'm constantly languaging the way I teach, so it's not so much about do this, do that, and it's more about notice what happens when you do this, mm-hmm. notice what happens, then I'm framing it in such a way that I'm constantly inviting people to witness and to notice their own experience. Mm-hmm. And that creates, and when I'm doing that from the space of loving kindness and from compassion, where there's nothing to achieve so much, there's nothing to do, it's, it's to simply be with what's arising in you right now, how does that feel? Then that gently leads students into that process without me being able to or needing to deal with each of those students one-on-one with such a large group. Makes sense. You also mentioned just before the tantric philosophy was an influence in your teaching. How did you discover tantric philosophy? Um, so when I did my teacher training with Shiva Ray, I went to Venice and studied with her in 2010. And she had Christopher Tompkins, who was a tantric scholar, come in and deliver the tantric portion of mm-hmm. the course 
Um, so Shiva's teachings are grounded in um, Kashmir Shaivism, which is a particular particular tantric lineage. Mm-hmm. And so that was really the beginning for me of, of understanding that. And so I learned that from Christopher and he initiated us in a particular daily tantric practice. And that's the one that I've been doing since then and over the last three or four years attempting to do the thousand days. Mm. Can you tell us what um, it looks like? Um, it looks, it doesn't look like very much to tell you the truth. Um, I do a few spinal rotations to, to sort of warm up. So I'm seated on the ground the whole time. Mm -hmm. There's some mudras going on. There's some chanting going on and there's a lot of stillness. And Mm. it's, it's very much about the internal workings. It's about where my attention is internally and what I'm observing internally. Um, and it's, it is about, you know, drawing Shakti up and bringing Shiva down and then uniting those two forces in the heart space, which then births forth a new consciousness. Hmm. Okay. So that's the that's the essence of it, um, of the practice itself. But if someone was to watch me, like, tell you what, doing the same thing every single day for a thousand days, it does not make for interesting Instagram posts. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, how many times can I show a photo of me sitting in the same position? <laughs> <laughs> but I'm sure there's still a lot of interesting things going on. <laughs> well, there are. That's it, because it is the subtleties and it is the internal stuff. Um, but yeah, my, so my, my um, forays into, into tantric yoga have mostly been the practice of it. Mm-hmm. And it's only been the last sort of three months or so when I had an internal prompting, okay, now you're ready to teach this. And I was like, really? No, I don't know. And then, but it was like, no, you're ready. Now's the time to start teaching this. Mm-hmm. So since that came through and I have started teaching the practice, I've gone, oh, I'm going to go and study it properly in books as opposed to the practice. And as I read more stuff, I mean, I have read some texts over the years, but as I dive back into that, what I find really fascinating is that the practice I've been doing over the last 18 years, it it mirrors what's in the books, even though I hadn't read the books beforehand, Mm -hmm. if you see what I mean. It's like the practice itself seemed to spontaneously flower the very thing that I'm now reading about from an intellectual perspective. Mm -hmm, The concepts. Yeah. And so I'm finding that like the most amazing journey because I feel like I'm living it already and now I'm connecting with other scholars and other practitioners and other teachers who have written down their experiences of it. And so it's it's like a confirmation of what I have been living out. Mm -hmm. What you've been doing, you've been been Mm. going in the right direction with it. Yeah, and that really lends itself to this sense of the way that we're internally guided. Like when we get ourselves out of the way, the practice itself is innate to us. It is the most natural thing in the world to practice, to be in yoga. Mm-hmm. Not even a practice, it's simply being. Mm-hmm. Where would you suggest people start if they are interested to learn a bit more about this? Mm, about tantra yoga? Mm-hmm. I would suggest finding a quali- a good teacher, like a teacher who lives their practice. Um, Rod Stryker springs to mind. Mm-hmm. Um, I've only done a couple of things with him. He came to Wonderlust here in New Zealand a couple of years ago. And, yeah, he just he impressed me with his presence and the way he taught. I had a, There was a recognition there. I was like, oh, yeah, this dude's the real deal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so, that I mean, that would be the first thing is to find someone you can learn with and then to just practice every single day, whatever it is that you practice, but to practice. Mm-hmm. Like nothing will – no matter how much you read about a thing, no matter how many courses you take or workshops you go on, nothing – is ever more powerful or potent than simply showing up being present with yourself in the practice. 
Yeah. Okay. I want to talk also about uh, the Yoga Lunchbox. So you're the founder, as I mentioned earlier, of that website. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to know what was your intention when you started the website? Like, why did you just start to write? Uh, so I've always been a writer. And prior to Yoga Lunchbox, I had written another blog <clears throat> called Be Conscious Now. And at the time, I'd stopped that for various reasons. And then I did a prana flow yoga um, teacher training module with Twee Merrigan. And that was my first teacher training module. And I was so inspired. It was like four days of immersion with Twee. And Twee's an amazing, mm -hmm. amazing teacher and woman. And I was so inspired coming off the back of that. Like, I think we finished on Sunday evening. And Monday morning, I got up and I'm like, right, I'm starting a blog on yoga. And I and I did, and so it began as my personal blog into yoga, um, and then over the years I really started reaching out to the yoga community and engaging with different people and speaking to different people. So it became not so much just my journey, but a, a much wider yoga community journey. Mm -hmm. You have contributors on the website as well. Is that what you mean? Yeah, yeah. like over because it's been ten years now, and over the ten years, there's been loads of people that have written articles and contributed, and then I've interviewed. Um, a lot of some of the best yoga teachers in the world, actually, that I've been really privileged and honored to have conversations with. And that's been extraordinary to to dial down and, and have conversations with them about their practice mm -hmm. and how they perceive yoga. Yeah. That's what we're doing today. Yeah, exactly. Just reverse. Exactly. I'm the one asking yeah. about it to you. <laughs> Mm -hmm. um, you wrote a lot of articles on your website and as a contributor for Elephant Journal that are very open, honest, and mm -hmm. vulnerable. So I wanted to ask you how you decide what you want to write about. Mm. So after I had that experience of psychosis in 2004, it was very much a part of my healing journey to to be honest and upfront and to to claim back those experiences and to say there is nothing shameful with having experienced psychosis. Mm -hmm. you know, there's nothing shameful with having been done. Like I was diagnosed bipolar at the time. Nothing shameful about having these experiences. And I found it so healing to just be simply honest and open um, about what I was going through. But one of the reasons too was that it was really hard for me to be vulnerable with people in person. Mm -hmm. But I was able to be vulnerable with people in the written word because I kind of felt like no one was reading it anyway. So it felt safe. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then as I went on, more and more people started reading it. And it was that was an interesting journey. But I was already in the rhythm of sharing it. And I could see the value in honest, vulnerable sharing of the challenges of just living an ordinary, everyday life. Mm -hmm. um, and so what... I would share, because writing was a process for me, it helped me to process my emotional landscape and it helped me often to to write my way into something so I could actually feel what was going on. So I was simply sharing, in a way, my journals that were helping me heal. So in terms of choosing what to share, that was what got got shared. It was, it was what I needed to write in order to wake up. Mm -hmm. um, and then it always seemed to really influence and support and help other people. I feel the same way about writing, so that's very interesting. Um, mm, it's such a powerful medium for, for connecting to truth when we can't necessarily do it in a different way. Mm -hmm. Do you have any advice for teachers that want to start to share more deeper, more personal experiences online or in class but are feeling a little unsettled with it and a little uncomfortable with it? Mm. I think it's definitely always worth inquiring why why am I feeling called to share this mm -hmm. and getting clear? Because I know that a lot of my early sharing was coming from sometimes an unconscious need 
for validation. Mm -hmm. And so in some ways it wasn't necessarily healthy. Mm. And yet it was also quite healing for me and it was useful for other people. So even though it's coming from an unconscious need, it's still all worked out okay in the end. Um, and I think, let me just feel into that for a moment. So it is useful. That would be one of the first things is to really feel into where is this desire to share coming from? Mm -hmm. Because sometimes we can feel it quite strongly, like I need to share this. And then there's a discomfort around being vulnerable, mm -hmm. you know? So then the question I would inquire, you know, suggest that people use is, where, you know, why do I feel uncomfortable or what am I afraid of or what could happen here? And that it can be a really good way to observe what attachments there might be in terms of um, attachments to how other people perceive us or what other people think of us. Mm -hmm. Because often there can be this idea that as a yoga teacher or a person in the public sphere that we're meant to have it all together, meant to have it all worked out and meant <laughs> to be awesome. And if I share my struggles or my challenges, then people won't respect me or people won't show up to my stuff because they're going to think that I'm falling apart. Mm -hmm. So that can go on for sure. And I mean, in my experience, mm, I have had feedback sometimes. People have come on retreat and after reading a lot of my stuff and they come on retreat with me and they're like, wow, you really know what you're doing. You're like so amazing. I had no idea you were so good at what you do. And because their impression of me from reading these vulnerable heart shares, they do have a sense of me being more broken or, mm. or, or less together, possibly. And I found that really interesting. I'm like, huh, that's like a reverse thing in a way. <laughs> yeah. 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 Is it you think because people usually show up in a way online that is a little better maybe than what they are? actually feel in life like they have a little bit of a pretending happening so if you do reverse if you're being super open super vulnerable absolutely authentic then people expect then you're a little worse than what you show up like online so <laughs> when they see you in person like oh you're actually not that bad yeah yeah I wonder I mean because I, I do think there is a tendency for us to to put our best foot forward when mm -hmm. we're online you know we 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 tend to hide the shadow and put forward the light. Yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah, and and that can be great in some ways, and then in other ways it can also not serve. And it's it's really delicate territory to navigate, and it's something I'm constantly inquiring into. Even now, I'm like, why am I sharing this? Why am I saying this? Where's it coming from? Mm -hmm. And and trying to be really clear on you know what's motivating me. And I'm probably more um, cautious now, and not cautious. That's the wrong word. It's I feel into things more deeply now when I go to share to, to, to see where is it coming from. And when I can sense it's coming from a genuine place, no matter what it is, I'll share. And if I can sense it's coming from an unconscious need for validation or approval or whatever, then if I notice that, mm -hmm. I won't share or I'll wait. I'll wait a day and then I'll see how does it feel now to share that thing. Um, and, I mean, another thing I'm kind of playing with, like I'm – 43 now so I'm getting older and I'm aware you know when I'm posting stuff that I'm always looking for the best lighting and the best angle and the best this mm -hmm. and I'm like can I can I be more vulnerable in sharing so it's not always the most flattering photograph mm -hmm. so it is more full spectrum you know so why only share the ones where I look great can I share the ones when I don't look great how does that feel is that possible so I'm also exploring and playing into that a little bit and that can be uncomfortable at times as well mm -hmm, for sure um you call yourself an awakened heart warrior what does that mean for mm. you <laughs> yeah so 
Awakened Heart Warrior. I did some branding work with an amazing conscious brand strategist, um, Sarah Hon, earlier this year. And she she came up with that. She was like, you know what? The stuff you do, you're like this awakened heart warrior. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I can't say that. I'm not awake. I'm not enlightened. And she's like, yeah, but you're walking the path of waking up. You can totally say that. And her and I had this huge discussion around it, actually. Um, but when I felt into it and felt into what it meant, there's, I like it because there's different ways to see it and to feel it. So awakened, to me, that feels like I am attuning every moment to what I'm saying and really noticing. I'm just simply noticing with awareness what's coming through. So I still have faults. I still have shadows. I still have flaws. I still have patterns. I still have all of that but I'm really awake to noticing them Mm -hmm. and the moment that I notice them, doing the work on them. So that's what awakened means to me. It means recognizing that there is a difference between being conscious and being unconscious, recognizing that there are parts of me that are still unconscious but wanting to see those parts, wanting to catch those parts. And then the heart aspect is the sense that everything that I do needs to come from unconditional love, unconditional love for myself, and unconditional love for other people, no matter who they are. You know, mm-hmm. like even Donald Trump. <laughs> like, yeah, I can so love that man and not condone his behavior. To me, that's the ultimate practice, right? Mm-hmm. To unconditionally love someone whose perspective and views I don't agree with. Um, so the awakened heart, then when I put awakened heart together, it also means awakening our heart space. Mm-hmm. It means waking up our heart, cracking open our heart so that we can hold all grief, so that we can feel all feeling. So no matter what's coming through our emotional landscape, we're able to meet it and feel it. And then that that's challenging. That requires courage. That oh, requires yes. the spirit of a warrior. And that's where the warrior comes in because mm. to truly step into one's heart, you have to be a warrior. You know, when you look at the word courage, it comes from the French word cœur, which means heart. Mm-hmm. And so to me, a heart warrior, those things are always intertwined, is that a warrior is one who who stands for something, who knows what their truth is and is not afraid to stand for it. So that brings in the truth aspect for me too, which is really critical, is to know one's own truth, to know truth and to have the courage to stand for it. So the awakened heart warrior feels like this path of walking with unconditional love and truth and not being afraid to to stand in love and stand in truth. Oh, that's so beautiful. I'm almost crying over here. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, How does this influence or direct your work, either when you do one-on-one or when you do retreats? It's it's massively influential in everything that I do. Like I see everyone who comes to me, especially on retreat, it's like I'm inviting them, you know, if they would like to, to walk this path of the awakened heart warrior, which means to walk in unconditional love and truth. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, to, to show up to what's true, like it, that in itself is such a difficult path, to, to show up to what's true in our own lives. And then you need to bring that love in because otherwise it gets really, really hard. Yeah. Um, so, so when I'm working with people on retreat, I, I lay out a whole framework for engaging with reality. And part of that framework for engaging with reality, like I liken it to stepping out of the matrix. It's like I'm inviting people to leave the matrix. Mm. And that framework is the path of the awakened heart warrior. And it's about walking in truth and walking in unconditional love and seeing what does that mean in your life, you know? 
Because so many people, for example, they might be in a relationship that they know is not serving them, but they're afraid to front up to that truth. Mm-hmm. And then that has ongoing repercussions in their life, you know, or they never speak the truth to the mother-in-law or to their father or to their cousin or to whoever because they're afraid, you know. So every time that we don't take action because we're afraid, we're putting ourselves in a prison. Mm-hmm. And to begin to acknowledge that, to become aware of that and then to acknowledge it and then to choose how we want to actually relate to it and go, you know what, I'm willing to start to step into the truth in my life and I'm willing to face the consequences of stepping into that truth because it is only by doing that that we can set ourselves free, you know. Like, and I, I do often reference Jesus in that respect because I think he was one of the great yogis. He said, you know, the truth will set you free. And that's what it means, that when you front up to truth as it is in your life, then you are no longer beholden to anyone and then you are no longer afraid. And that is such an extraordinarily powerful place to operate from. Absolutely. Um, For teachers that are just starting to lead retreats, how can they make their students' experience more potent? If they, like, they hear you and they're like, yes, absolutely, I want to do this. How how do they start? Is it we're coming mm. back to self-study, right? We're coming back to mm. vulnerability. If I feel like everything you do is very well knitted together and very intertwined. Mm. Yeah, it is. I think it's because I've lived this path mm-hmm. for the last 10, 20 years. Like all I'm doing really is is living what I do and then sharing it on retreat. And on retreats, like I'm really clear about the journey that I want to take people on. So when people come on retreat with me, they're not just showing up to chill by the pool and do a couple of yoga classes and, and relax. Mm-hmm. Like that's one kind of retreat. So I think for teachers that are stepping into retreats, getting really clear on what's the experience or what's the journey that I want to take people on mm-hmm. and, and just owning that, you know. So if you want to take people on an experience where they simply deeply relax and go through and have a lot of self-care, just know that's the journey and own it right? Mm-hmm. Um, if you want to take people on a particular psychological journey, you know, or, or personal development journey or awakening journey, again, it's being clear on knowing what that is and then mapping that territory and then figuring out, well, how do I take people on that journey? What is the map that I take them on over the course of the retreat? You know, um, when I first started leading retreats, I used the chakras as a map, as my system. So I, the first retreat I ever did was called the Great Emptying Out with my friend Helen. And we mapped it out. So the first session was all about Moladara. It was about arriving and grounding. Mm-hmm. You know? And then the second one was all about Svaristan. So it was about getting into movement and energy and free flow. <clears throat> and I knew where I wanted to take people. And I knew that by anchoring to the chakras in each session, that it would take people on the journey of emptying out. Um, and it was. It was extraordinary. And it worked in such an incredibly powerful way. And it's still the loose format that I use on the great emptying out. Like I'm really aware of, like it's a multidimensional journey. There's on one hand, there's a framework of the awakened heart warrior walking in unconditional love and truth, stepping outside the matrix. And then on the other hand, there's also what we do energetically and emotionally, which maps along the, the chakras, the recognition that first we have to really ground and arrive and create a particular container for the magic of the retreat to happen. Mm-hmm. And then the journey that we take people through, going through Swadhisthana and then Maripura, really connecting to power, action, the will, so we can then break open the heart from a foundation of strength 
and power, you mm-hmm. know, because if you break your heart open and you, you don't have grounding and you, and you don't have this sense of um, a stem, a strong stem coming up from Muladhara, you can fall to pieces, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah so, yeah, so I'm really mindful on retreats of understanding the psychological territory that we're traversing and how to use the practices and the sessions to support people so that they have exactly what they need at each stage of the journey to safely undergo the transformation that they are ready for. Mm-hmm. That sounds amazing. If people want to come on a retreat with you or they want more info about what you do, where can they find you? I'll put all the details in the show notes, but where's the best place for them to go? Yeah, so I, my website is caralea.com. So everything is on there. And then I'm also on Facebook and Instagram, Caralea Grant. So those are the best places to find me. So all my events, retreats are listed on both the website and Facebook. Um, I've got one one retreat coming up in Mexico soon, actually, which would suit a North American audience, of mm-hmm. course, because it's a quick flight from the States. And that's September 30th to October 4th. And it's the great emptying out. So we're going to spend five days and four nights identifying and then emptying out and releasing that which no longer serves us, whether it's old fears, unconscious beliefs, um, behavior patterns, safety mechanisms, defense mechanisms, whatever it is, whatever's ready to go. Mm. That sounds like a very interesting experience. Yeah, it is. um, I've done quite a few. I think this is the seventh great ending out that I've led and the format, the structure is always the same and the experience is always very different because it's always um, personal to whoever shows up, the needs of the group. I work very organically and intuitively within the structure, within the container. Anything else you want to add before we wrap this up? Anything we haven't covered you wanted to mention? Mm. Yeah, just speaking on that, that idea of strong container just came to me. Mm-hmm. That that is very much the sense of Shiva. Like when I feel into Shiva and what is Shiva, to me it is that container. It's a witness. It's consciousness itself, and the container that it creates it then allows Shakti, which is the energy and the intuition and the flow and the magic. When it allows it to safely do its thing, and so to me that's the essence of the tantric practice that I'm on. It's, it's being able to interface or engage with each of those different forces as required and so on retreat it's very much about that for me it's that container the shiva aspect the witness the consciousness that holds us so that we can then do the transformation the energetic aspect that is the shakti the magic the kundalini you know which is almost almost the wildness and the unknown Mm -hmm. but it needs to be held with the shiva and so And then that, the merge of the two, the merge of the two, of course, is union, which is yoga. Mm -hmm. You know, whenever I think, what is yoga? It's like, it's it's the understanding of those two energies and then the ability to to be both at once, the ability for those to merge within the field of consciousness, really. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. That was an awesome interview. Uh, My pleasure, Erica. I love, listen to a few of your interviews now. I love what you're doing. So thank you so much for inviting me to come and speak. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. We have other great guests coming up, so make sure to subscribe. Now, if you want to make my day and get a chance to win a $75 shop card from Atleta, all you have to do is head on to iTunes or on your podcast app on your iPhone and write a review. As you leave your review, you automatically enter the giveaway and I will announce the winner of the next episode. 
If you're newer to review, check out the show notes for instructions. Or for more info about our guest of today, you can go to my website, ericabelanger.com slash blog dash podcast. And I write my first name in a K. Last episode, I thought I was also giving out a $75 shop card. Thank you so much if you left a review. The winner of that giveaway is user TK Searless. TK Searless said, Thank you, Erica, for airing this beautiful interview with Erica Trice titled Finding Refuge in Your Yoga Practice. This article filled my heart as it spoke to me personally. I am sometimes a teacher, always a student. This interview supported me and offered beautiful insight for my life and my compassion for sharing this practice. Also, thank you for the book suggestion, Mark Nepo, The Book of Awakening, Having the Life You Want by Being Present in the Life You Have. I headed straight to Amazon and purchased a used copy. I'm all about repurposing. Wink, wink. Sincerely, Tony. Well, thank you, Tony, for your comment. Email me at erica.belanger at gmail.com or DM me on Instagram and I'll send you your shop cards. See, guys, it's that simple. Once again, thank you so much for joining us and until next time.